I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast we have here, and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. We were laughing about a couple things before the podcast that threw me off a little bit, yep. but I'm going to welcome my friend Sean Latimer, uh, my favorite guest here on uh, the Thoughts on Money podcast. How are you today? Doing great. Happy to be here. We're talking basketball this morning. My legs are sore. <laughs> His legs are sore. <laughs> That's why we were laughing. We play basketball every Tuesday, Thursday morning. I want to say it keeps us young, but it reminds us that we're getting old. Yeah, it does the opposite. It reminds us that we're not young. I wrote this article and I called it Storm Chasers. Have you ever seen the movie Twister? <sighs> yeah, I remember it. Like vividly. I remember in parts, but I went back and looked at it because it was like, I was thinking about this analogy, which we'll talk about today. Fun facts. It was the first movie in the United States that went to DVD. Wow. Second highest grossing film in 1996. Mm. If there's a category on uh, Jeopardy for Twister, I think I'm going to win. So here's what I was trying to do. This idea of storm chasing. That movie made storm chasing really popular. And then in the center of our country, we have this kind of area that we call Tornado Alley for, man, I don't know if I want to say that on the podcast. I'm thankful I don't, that, that stuff scares me. So I'm thankful I don't live there. We but have, I, We have different things. We have earthquakes here. They have tornadoes. Totally. There's hurricanes on the coast. There's always something. But storm chasing has gotten so popular that there's actually like adventure travel places where you can sign up to, to go on a storm oh chasing gosh. route with them. But I read a few articles from local newspapers that talked about the worst thing is, is what is what are the police officers doing? They're out there focusing on the tornado, right? Yeah. So then what are people doing? Running stop signs, running red lights, like following their devices to, to storm chase, and traffic is extra heavy. There's all these cases of uh, fatalities not from the tornado, from car accidents. Wow. Uh, and they say the traffic gets unruly Two things. One, like people getting... People trying to evacuate. People I'm trying sure. to evacuate. Yeah. But then also people trying to get in. Oh, it's uh, got to be so frustrating. You're trying to like, clear out a street or something and, and you have like paparazzi almost trying to get there. Yeah. So as I was like writing this, I was I was thinking of like, okay, in this idea of storm chasing, I'm sure there's an appropriate person to do it, like a meteorologist or something where there's some science that's going to happen. But then there's amateurs that step in and try to do it and it can be fatal. Even if it's not from the tornado. So the analogy I'm making here is uh, performance chasers. Uh, And it sounds like a derogatory word to use, but it is something that we've become familiar with in our industry. And I want to, in this discussion with you and in the article I wrote, bifurcate this idea that I think it's absolutely appropriate to review performance and have some sort of judgment on that. What I'm scared about is that amateurs that want to be performance chasers don't know the questions to ask. Uh, and I think they put themselves in harm's way. You're hundred percent right. And it, it comes in different ways too. It's not necessarily leaving investment A for investment B because you think it'll outperform or, and then going switching back and forth to try and time it. Sometimes it's big decisions where 40 year old person with a really, really long time horizon in retirement accounts is in mostly cash. And it's like, Oh man, that's gotta be such an uneasy feeling to know like when to go in, when to go out. And then if you make one mistake, you kind of have that, like you second guess yourself, you know, and uh, I, I see it often. And one thing I wanted to draw attention to, and we'll talk about three different type of people uh, at this section of the discussion. I don't think most people are not immune to this. And, and we'll talk about professionals as well. So the first place I talked about in the article was when somebody makes their 401k elections, what do they typically do? 
they just scroll through and pick the best one. Yeah, you have this list of investments with very limited information, right? It's it's a list of it might give you asset class and then maybe maybe five three five ten year performance, and you can sort it. And sometimes they'll put like Morningstar ratings, so it's like five stars, shiny, looks good, and it's the best performance. Like, ooh, I want that one. Yeah, so I feel like we've trained people to to have that mode of just say, look at three, five, ten, pick which one you want, um, and pick the one that was the best performer. Yet, the disclaimer, what does it always say? This is not financial advice. Or past performance oh, is it's not, not indicative yeah, 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 of yeah. future results. So it's so weird that that disclaimer. Like, you know, there's a disclaimer on cigarettes. Like, these can cause harm. It doesn't stop anybody. They mm-hmm. they they just kind of walk right past that disclaimer, and they say, hey, where's the 3510 performance? Let me choose the thing that's done the best in the past. So, okay, we just picked on um, retail investors. But then you and I talked about this the other day. Uh, what do wholesalers do? And let me give a little description yeah. of what a wholesaler is. Uh, in our industry, not so much at our office, but when, when Sean and I worked together at a, a former- um, Large uh, institution. Large bank. institution, yeah. yeah. There would be wholesalers in there every day. And what they're doing is they're selling their products- Bringing us To breakfast. the advisors. Yeah, they're bringing <laughs> breakfast. They would bring breakfast and lunch. They're, they're really trying to wine and dine the advisor because the advisor is the gatekeeper to the client. Mm-hmm. So they were basically, they wanted shelf space. Yeah. Um, they wanted the advisors to use their products. So um, I didn't prep you for this, but I'll just ask you, um, a wholesaler is going advisor door to door. What are they selling? All different types of things. But normally they'll have some sort of narrative or story to support the product that they're pushing. Because let's be honest, they're really good at what they do. They're kind of like the best salespeople in that side of the industry. So their job is to, Come build a relationship. Talk to you about you know, friends, kids, the office, whatever it may be. Then they show how competent they are. So they're going to talk about markets and what's happening and interest rates and things you should be worried about. Then they're going to have a solution on no matter what side you are of the argument, too. So they're pretty smart the way they approach it. If you say, like, yeah, I'm really concerned about interest rates. Perfect. Us, too. That's why we have this. We got a solution for that. We got a solution for that. Oh, I don't think that's a real issue. Neither do we. That's why we have this, and they're really good at it. Let me ask you this, though. Um, most of these wholesalers, they are coming from what we would call fund families, right? Uh, asset managers. Yeah, asset managers. Lots that of different mutual funds. Different yeah. products, right? So uh, let's say they have 10 different products. This wholesaler, we're going to call John. John has 10 different products, and one of those 10 products has absolutely been crushing it over the last 12 months. Yep. What's John selling? Oh, he's talking about how great they are and what, how they're crushing it, and then it feeds into the narrative. So that's the uh, the lunch pitch. The funny part is, too, and we were talking about this, is because um, we have some friends that work in the industry and do those things, and I've asked them, like, wow, it's got to be a, a struggle when, you know, your team's not winning, right? And none of the funds are really outperforming, and because, the, unfortunately, on that side of the business, performance does drive a lot of the flows. Flows meaning money going in and out. And if you have a, kind of a bunch of losers on your balance sheet, I asked my friend, like, what do you do? And, and he's he told me, he's like, well, you just get really good at uh, changing the narrative or the story that th- now their time has come. You can be one of the early ones to get better valuation. And I'm like, oh, man, it never ends, you know? You got to sell the mystery box. You just got to keep doing it. No, nothing in the results. But the, the point I was making, I talked about in the article, the wholesaler will naturally do. They're going to just sell the most sparkly thing in their briefcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the uh, path of least resistance. And if you start to notice it and you just watch it, it's actually, uh, it'll cause your stomach to turn because it's like, wow, this office has 100 advisors 
and they have wholesalers that are well-spoken, competent salespeople just selling what is sparkly right now. Uh, so um, the point I'm making is we just kind of critiqued uh, retail investors on the 401k side. Wholesalers, I, I don't leave them out. They're doing the same thing. And then the, the third example that I gave um, is both you and I started our careers as advisors in the same place. We started in a call center. Mm-hmm. And I said the the timeline between um, certification to be an advisor mm-hmm. and being client-facing, very short timeline. Not good. Yeah. So we were uh, we had imposter syndrome. We felt like, man, we are not really equipped to be helping and giving advice because we are so new. So you have this entire population in the call center uh, and this technology, this software that helps to build asset allocation proposals. What am I going to do? Here's how the software works. Hey, what large cap fund would you like to propose to this client? Here's 10 options. I'm going to organize those by the best results over the last five years. Pick the best result. Now you're going to pick a small cap. Now you're going to pick small capitalization company means smaller domestic companies. Now you're going to pick an emerging markets fund. Now you're going to pick a bond fund. Why just go through there, organize it by the last five years of performance, and then what does it spit out? This very shiny proposal. The best looking proposal ever. Yeah, and and is it lying? No, like that is what that proposal is. The problem is nobody experienced those results. So for listeners that don't know, uh, large institutions have um, like pre-cut asset allocations with only certain approved investments allowed. And it's interesting because if you you know dig under the hood, you'll learn that all those asset manager companies pay something called a platform fee. So that way they can be one of those 10 that you choose from. So it wasn't necessarily malicious. You were relatively new to the industry. But the idea of you were just trying to pick the best one for the clients, but unfortunately, it could be misleading. It can. And then the problem for me now, I know that because I experienced it, but somebody shopping for advisors, they don't know that. Mm-mm. And then I'm in the awkward position where I have to say, hey, I understand that you might be interviewing the Bonsa Group and ABC and XYZ. I don't want to be critical of my peers in, in the industry. But when you're bringing a proposal and said, hey, this proposal shows this, my response is always the same. Did a client actually experience that? Um, there is a very famous mutual fund. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but had uh, stellar, absolutely stellar results um, through the late 90s, right? Um, if you look at the compounding returns over an annual basis, I don't know what time period, three years or five years, it was just stellar. But there was this gigantic gap between the fund performance and what the average investor in that fund return was. Uh, I don't want to get too technical, but I'm going to say this. We would call that the difference between uh, time-weighted returns and dollar-weighted returns. Mm -hmm. What point am I trying to make is that the manager did a really good job for somebody that started with him on day one. Yeah. The problem is most people came in in the eighth inning. Yeah. After he did a really good job. So it was something, again, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like the compound return, let's say it's north of 20%, but the average investor had a negative return. Mm. Uh, and it just shows this idea of if you come in at the eighth inning, you don't get anything that came in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that, that tells the story. Like, think about it. Uh, asset manager hits a home run or grand slam. Like, wow, they're amazing. The money follows because the news is out that this person's amazing. And let's be honest, it's really hard to be right multiple times in this industry. So then they were wrong, and all those people that invested later didn't benefit from it. 
But if you look at the stats over the course of time, because that year one was such a winner, the stats look really good. Yeah, and, and that kind of tees up this idea is uh, there is a way to assess performance. Um, institutions do it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not looking at 3, 5, and 10. They're asking uh, another layer of questions. They're looking at a manager's batting average. How persistent is that manager? They're looking at what risk did they actually take, and was it prudent? Did the reward that pay off match kind of the risk that they took? What's the attribution? Mm-hmm. Did they own just one stock that was just a high flyer uh, and it covered all their other wounds? Um, an institution is going to dive much, much deeper than the average investor can. Yeah, they'll look into the turnover. If there's constantly, you know, overhaul of the portfolio, or it might uh, signal that the portfolio manager is kind of chasing different ideas in different years. So, yeah, you're right. The problem is storm chasers are not equipped to go out and try to take, uh, get as close as they can, as exciting as they can, and take that best photograph of the tornado. And your average investor is not equipped to have that performance conversation. That is so difficult for me to say. Because it sounds rude. It sounds rude. It not only sounds rude, but it also sounds like a cop-out. Well, that like, too, yeah. Yeah, like, oh, you know, I'm going to avoid this conversation. Uh, and I am trying to mature as an advisor myself is – and I've used this word a couple of times in conversation, but I don't think it resonates with people, is I'm trying to tell them that... Foolish. No, I'm no, just kidding. That's too mean. No, <laughs> that I, I'm just trying to be intellectually honest. Like, I'm just trying to, to, to provide my experience uh, because that experience in the call center, you were there. Mm-hmm. That was real. And, like, to look back at it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It was bad. Yeah, and um, we were ill-equipped to be having those conversations. Now, you could say, like... How are you ever equipped without experience? You know, I mean, that chicken or egg, like you're, you're not going to get it without going through that. So I can appreciate that. But um, from that experience, I've become very sensitive to the way that I talk about, hey, this is what performance looks like and, and kind of the way you should tease this out. My encouragement a lot of the time, if somebody really wants to have that discussion, is ask the person on the other side to give an example of a real client's results um, and maybe a, a few clients because here's the thing like maybe this isn't the perfect analogy but if if i invite your family over for dinner is my house going to be the cleanest it's ever been all week yes probably it absolutely is uh my wife is going to make me make sure that that is true uh if you ask an advisor performance related questions they are going to polish it yeah um it's unavoidable they're they're not going to invite you into their dirty house so um there should be some prudence and there should be some diligence um, for your side as an investor. Uh, but you also have to be careful because otherwise you're going to get exactly what you're looking for. It sounds like we're kind of talking about two different things. Like uh, one, a client interviewing an advisor and then putting their foot, best foot forward that might not be as accurate if or the same allocation if they were to become a client. Or are you also talking about people who are storm chasers on the retail side chasing different investments? Yeah, that's a great question and a good clarifying point. I'm really talking about um, people that are shopping for an advisor. Okay. Um, But I am analogizing that with performance chasing because in that, somebody has opted into this idea, okay, Sean, I'm not going to manage money myself, so I am going to hand it over to a professional. This is where the performance chasing comes. Now, I'm going to try to go into the eye of the storm and try to figure out which one of these folks is the best fit for me. You know what I'm thinking of right now? Mm-hmm. You know the movie Twister? The little, like thing that shoots all the balls out in the tornado? 
that's kind of like them. They're like looking at all the different advisors. I don't know. Bad analogy. No, I, I, I'm glad you said it because I don't have I, – I remember the premise of the movie, yeah. not the particulars. So uh, that that is the – the reason I'm writing this article is because I've experienced this a lot. And again, at this stage in my career, this is a weird way to put it, but after I get off some of those conversations, my heart goes out to that person because I was like, man, I wish I could just – like go shoulder to shoulder with them and help them in some of their other interviews yeah. uh, and equip them with the right questions because I don't blame them for the questions that they're asking. They're the same questions I would ask if I didn't have the experiences I've had. Especially when it's glaringly obvious that they're being told things that are it may not be true, like guaranteed performance or glossy pages that look really good, but you, you're kind of like, ah, I don't know. But at the same time, by telling them like, hey, this might not be accurate or you need to kind of like separate the performance and who's a good fit philosophically, even that might come across as a sales pitch. So it's kind of a difficult conversation either way. Yeah. It's, it's so difficult, especially because like you just said, some of it's so much of it's built on trust and trust takes time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing I kind of wanted to throw in the article is people need to be really delicate with back tests. Um, There has been an evolution or a, a, a growing desire for quantitative managers and people who basically design these certain mechanisms for filtering and rules that kind of create a portfolio. Uh, And let's make up one that would be unrealistic, but let's say we had one rule. We only buy stocks that start with the letter A. Now, I could show you, potentially, uh, over the last 10 years. Probably did pretty good. Yeah, (laughs) as I think of a few uh, of the top performing stocks that start with the letter A. So. We could look at that, and we know we would be like, "Oh, well, that's silly. Um, there's no, there's no causation there." Um, and, and kind of this this idea of of mixing correlation and causation. But just because the rules get more complex, um, like price to sales ratios and different things, uh, what they will often do is curve fitting. They will make adjustments to their back tests to fit the result that they want. And what you have to look at there is what do out-of-sample results look like? So that worked really well over this certain time period. Um, Will it work really well going forward? The best way to test that is go look at out-of-sample results. Now, that is not going to be very obvious for uh, an investor that has a full-time job, that has kids at home, um, that is volunteering at their local church or whatever. They're not going to have time to do that. So again, this idea of back tests, you have to be really careful. I wrote about this idea of time and place. If I tell you, hey, I built this strategy based on companies that uh, had earnings results that were better than expectations. So if earnings results were better than expectations, I'm buying things backwards that had a result that I wouldn't have known in that time or place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And there's obviously a correlation between stock prices growing and earnings. So uh, this idea when you backtest curve fitting, out of sample results, time and place data, like it's not obvious. And again, my heart goes out because it's a very wild landscape i'm getting this picture of you know uh somebody pulling into las vegas flashing lights like best slot machines in town free buffet red carpet yeah and you're like like where do i go i mean even when i go to las vegas i I, sometimes i'll ask a friend i haven't been in a long time should i stay at this hotel or that hotel and they'll talk about the different dynamics uh, of somebody who's more intimate with kind of the the las vegas culture uh it is overwhelming 
Can we talk about Benchmark? Yeah, you tee us up. All right. So this one stuck out to me because it's interesting when people are interviewing different advisors and they'll bring up some sort of product, right? Like They have a large cap growth fund that has been performing 24% every year. And it, with my plan, you told me I would average 7 or 8%. I want to average 20%. And my first question is, so they're putting all of the money in that one investment? Oh, no, I don't think so. Or if someone comes and tries to compare their portfolio to, you know, an index. And, and I think you bring up a really good point that it's not, you can't compare your portfolio to one investment or one even asset allocate, or allocation. You, can, you really have to look at what you would actually own. And I find that a lot with people who want to talk about performance and they're half in cash. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you can't compare the two. Yeah, I meditated on that idea for a long time uh, of, of benchmarking because uh, I too wanted to like figure out, hey, how, how would I assess something? And in you know that long thought process, I came to a conclusion, and this is the picture I got, there's a fork in the road. I'm going to choose to invest that way, and I'm going to, uh, there's the trade-off, right? I'm not going to invest that way. That other fork, to me, is the benchmark. What did you used to own? What would you have owned? Um, but I can always, if we play the game of like, hey, look at the performance of this, I want to use this as a benchmark, I'll find you something that's a way better benchmark, right? I can find something that did better than that. You can always play that game. Yeah. And that's where it's hard here. So there has to be some level of contentment. Mm-hmm. There has to be some level of where the portfolio is linked to an objective, meaning the portfolio is a puzzle piece that fits into the financial plan. But then you should, like, maybe this is harsh language, but I tell a client, I'm I'm willing to be accountable. Hold my feet to the fire. Like, I own the same stuff I'm recommending. Um, I can tell you the purpose, the reason, the, all of that. So I'm I like that accountability piece. But like you, I, I don't like the conversations that go off into kind of these huge tangents. Well, like, oh, well, I would have done this. And you're like, no, you would not. Yeah, Let's look owned, at the game film. Yeah, you know? I would have owned, you know, uh, two times leverage NASDAQ. Yeah. And I'm like, that's weird. Oh, when okay. I met you, you owned all treasuries. So yeah. when would that have happened? <laughs> it's a funny thing we talk about, too. I know this investor is out there. So, again, if you want to email me and tell me you're this investor, that's fine. I, I know you're out there. I'm telling you I've never met you. So the investor that uses the S&P 500, we'll just use as an example, uh, benchmark versus S&P 500. I have not met the investor that owns 100% of their investment money in the S&P 500. I've heard people argue that, advocate for it. I even had like a little bit of a Twitter debate with a, with a famous investor on this topic is that the advocation comes, right? And then I look at the underlying portfolio and that's not what it is. Um, they have, you know, a certain stock and I'm like, oh, you know, I read this one article and I bought it and I just thought it was a really good idea. Or they own, you know, this value fund. You know what? I, I read this other article that talked about value. So they might have a piece of the S&P 500, but then they put all these little attachments to it. So if, if that's the benchmark you want to follow yourself to, then own it because um, you have that option. You can't own the index, but you can own something that replicates it for pretty cheap. Again, never met that investor. And this I, isn't a criticism, but uh, for the storm chasers out there that make changes and, and tinker and, and things like that, um, I hardly meet people that have a real quantitative reason of why they bought things. Like, oh, PE ratio is at this, uh, interest rates are doing that, uh, I have a screener that brought these stocks up and that's why I bought it. It's normally, oh, I think I, I just have this feeling that this is happening. And 
I, even myself, I would not trade on my gut feeling because uh, I can't count how many times I've been like, oh, that went the other direction, you know? Totally. And um, I can give an easy example. Uh, a man I have a ton of respect for. I've read a ton of his books. I think if there was a Mount Rushmore of personal finance, his face is on there. Everybody would agree. Uh, uh, rest in peace. He's no longer with us. The founder of Vanguard, John Bogle, right? What was, according to him, what was in his portfolio? He he was a big advocate for that S&P 500. Was it he, half and half? Uh, yeah. He, yeah. He, he would always say half in stocks and half in bonds. And then you'd ask him why. It wasn't even an intellectual no. answer. It was, uh, if stocks are doing good, I'm happy that I own them. Uh, if they're doing bad, I'm really happy that I own some <laughs> bonds. And then he owned a hedge fund. And then people would- His sons? Yeah, 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 yeah. People would challenge him. Why do you own that? It's my son. Uh, I want to have skin in the game with what my son's doing. Uh, and <laughs> what conclusion do we get from there? Investments way more than quantitative. It's qualitative. Yeah. Uh, he explained this psychological reason for why he owned this and this. Um, and he explained um, this other personal reason for why he owned the hedge fund. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. And that's why, as somebody who's talked to thousands of investors, I've still yet to meet the person that owns just S&P 500 for the last even decade. Yeah, that's all I got. That was a really good example. <laughs> yeah, so I think we covered basically everything. I'll encourage you to read the article. Um, again, a lot of these conversations are just sparked off of uh, conversations we're having throughout the week. And uh, Sean and I are humans. Uh, we are still trying to mature as advisors, uh, not always in um, the intellectual side, but just sometimes in the delivery side um, and understanding the psychology of investing. And our hearts are really, we want the best for investors. Um, we will debrief conversations a lot of time and it will be, man, I really feel bad for that person because um, they've done a great job saving. Uh, they have some, some good momentum in the right direction, uh, but they can't get out of their own way. And uh, there's not an easy way to tell somebody that, especially somebody that you don't have a deep and long relationship with. Yeah, first uh, or second meeting, it's really hard to have those uh, deep conversations. Totally. So here's a place where we can... Um, not point fingers, uh, not use names, but just talk in the broad strokes and try to help investors make uh, better decisions. Even as I say that, I think of some good friends and family members where I, I still uh, sit on my hands and don't tell them some feedback. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, it's 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 a delicate thing, but um, hopefully you can adopt in your mind that uh, amateur storm chasing uh, leads to a lot of trouble. But there's meteorologists out there that it is appropriate for them to do it, um, and it's absolutely okay to talk about performance, uh, and there is a way to do it, um, but often it could be more of a distraction uh, than helpful in somebody's diligence process. So uh, we will ask that you rate the podcast five stars or preferred. All comments are welcome. Easy way to get a hold of myself, Trevor, or Sean is to email tom at thebonsagroup.com, T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. Um, and uh, as long as you will allow us, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future 
future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.